Good morning. Thank you very much. Good to be with you today. And um, I like how Ken introduced me because most places I go, I'm known as Tamina's husband. So, <laughs> that's, most people know her more than they know me. Um, it's great to be here today. I look forward to this for a long time after talking to your pastor. And, um, and actually, he wanted her to come and speak, and she said, I can't come, but my husband can come, right? So, so she assigned me to this duty as well today, and, um, <clears throat> but that's okay. I, I love to preach. I've been looking at your, some of your videos and stuff to try to see how people speak here and how they talk here so that I can make sure I sort of stay within those bounds because I can get pretty worked up sometimes, and, uh, and I'll, I'll try to do that today. But I'm a black pastor from the Caribbean. And uh, so, <laughs> if some of my Caribbean comes out, then uh, I, I'm just telling you right now, prepare for that. Uh, I have on a jacket today because I wanted to sort of come and look formal and make sure that you knew that I came formal, but I really don't want to preach in this jacket if you don't mind, but it's okay, right? <laughs> so, but you can tell everybody he did have a jacket on if... If, Je if, if Jerry Kester asked, you can say, yes, he actually came prepared. Right? Jerry and I have been good friends for many years. We served on the, the Intermountain District Advisory Board for many, many years, dealt with many, many issues that we won't talk about that we should not have had to deal with, but because we deal with people, we have to deal with those issues. But we also saw some really great things happen in the church. And, and church planting and stuff like that. I came to the Caribbean, and i give you a little bit about myself so you sort of get a little bit of context of where I am before I get into the message. And uh, the message also par partially is probably a little bit about me as well. But I, in 1982, I got out of high school, and uh, I've always wanted to go to college and to become a doctor. That was my thing. I was... And I didn't know how I was going to do that. And nobody in my family had ever been to college before. Um, so it was a dream that I had. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. And one Sunday in church, just like this, um, <clears throat> I was an usher in the back. And I'm just going to give you the synopsis of this, right? This is like an hour and a half story with pictures and everything. <laughs> but, um, and in walked our district superintendent with a couple who I found out was from North America, and they were actually from Northwest Nazarene University. His name was Irvin and Beverly Laird. Some of you may know him. He is who I call my father today uh, for all practical purposes. He's not my biological father, but in every other way of my life, he has been a father to me. And, um, and I met him that day, and just coincidentally, as a usher, I had to take him to his seat uh, and, and then he was not the preacher, but he was just there. Now, here's how he happened to be there. His daughter, Becky, who is now a professor at Point Loma Nazarene University, was in another island doing a summer missions where my brother was the pastor of the church that she was doing it at. And we didn't know that. Two of my brothers are Nazarene pastors. Actually, they, they, they were twins, and they just both retired this year. Uh, one was a district superintendent for a while. So anyhow, I met, so, so he was on his way there, and lo and behold, there was a storm, right? Now, the Bible talks about God working through storms, right? And that storm transited them in Barbados for 24 hours, and in that 24 hours, he met me. And then six hours later, he was gone. And he looked at me, and he says, what do you want to do with your life? I said, I want to become a doctor. I want to go to college. He said... If you will do everything in your power to do that, I will do everything in my power to help you from this day on. And he gave me his address, gave me his, his phone number, but in those days that didn't matter, right? Because calling from the Caribbean to Nampa was really expensive. It's not like today. <laughs> you can get on WhatsApp. So we wrote for two years, and um, I got to go to Northwest Nazarene University. So here's a storm, right? 24 hours later, he was gone. Two years later, I started Northwest Nazarene University. I left Barbados with $169 to attend a school that cost $5,500 a year at that time. I graduated from Northwest Nazarene College with no debt. 
the seven loaves and two fish. God multiplied that $165 to pay every bill, everything I needed, everything I needed for four years was completely taken care of. I don't know how it was all taken care of, but he took care of it. It didn't mean I didn't have to work. I took 16 credits a quarter and I worked two jobs because I was on the four-year plan. Whenever I go to school, my first question is, when do I graduate? <laughs> and then I work backwards. So that's how I met Doc. And that's how I became to get to Nazareth Nazarene University. Got a degree in chemistry, went into work. I worked. I'm a bivocational minister to this day. I, got, I worked in many different things, um, food science, uh, medical research. Then I got into the environmental industry and environmental and safety, cleaning up Superfund sites and stuff like that. Always involved in the church. We got married right out of NNU and you can guess who married us. Irving Laird. <laughs> and Dr. Francis Sharpton, we got, was loaning me his car. And the computer science professor learned, loaned us his house to get married in. And Bill Vonda Downs from Nampa First Church loaned my wife a dress to get married in. And <laughs> so all those people in the Nazarene circles. And it's amazing, we had met Bill and Vonda Downs in Barbados three years earlier not knowing that we would actually end up eventually being in their church and do, working with them. So God brings us full, full time. We get married. And now, I'll take you forward and backward. Now I, I serve as an associate pastor at Kent Hillside Church after being, I've only been a pastor for about 10 years. Uh, started a church in Salt Lake City. We live in Salt Lake City for 30, 30 years um, there. And... So, how does all this fit together, right? So, we got married and, and moved, to Salt, we moved to Utah to get my master's degree, preparing to go to college. God didn't want me to go to college, to, to, to go to medical school. He sent me to college and other things. Got a master's degree in transportation management from Denver University. And then one night I was standing ironing. I like to iron. Every Sunday night I iron all of my clothes for the week. That's my relaxation. I iron for my whole family. And the Lord appeared to me and he says, when are you going to stop doing what you want to do and start doing what I want you to do? And it was a 20-year fight. I mean, I'm not, this is not imagination. I was ironing. I was ironing like this, and the Lord was there. Asked me that. And I said, what do you mean? He says, you know what I mean. I said, if you really want me to do this, you've got to confirm it to five other people for them to know that. And uh, I told my wife about it, and she was not very enthusiastic at first. And uh, another Saturday night I was ironing, and I was praying, and I said, Lord, why doesn't my wife understand if you want me to do this? And he said, I know how to speak to your wife. Why don't you take care of what I ask you to do? I'll take care of her. <laughs> right. <laughs> very direct conversations. <laughs> so, and uh, I'll try to stay within your time limit because I noticed that you get out at 11.58. So I don't, don't want to mess that up. I don't want to mess up your plans. So anyhow, we, we, get, we get through that, and God did confirm it, confirm it to five people. One of the first people he confirmed it to was Jerry Kester at the District Advisory Board. He looked at me in the middle of the District Advisory Board and says, why are you not listening to what God told you to do? right in the middle of the advisory board, wow. right? Then another one of my friends who was, I'm only gonna tell you two of them, well, I gotta tell you three. I called Dr. Laird and I said, Doc, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. And I'm going on, he says, I already know what happened to you, Grantley. Doc always knows what happens to the 125 men that he disciples. Um, he said, God's been calling you to the ministry forever. I was just wondering when you were gonna say yes without me telling him anything, that's what he said. So then another one of my pastors who was an Assemblies of God pastor friend, we worked together a lot in Salt Lake, he got this mysterious illness, and um, he was in ICU at the hospital. His wife called me and said, Grantley, Alfred's in ICU. You gotta come and see him, he wants to see you. So I go up to the ICU and I'm in there, he's in there with his, his children and stuff, and I me, mean, he looked bad, you know. In the Caribbean, we said he, he had one foot 
one foot in the dirty and one foot on ground. What that means is he, had, he, was, <laughs> he looked like he was ready to go over, right? One foot here, one foot there. And, uh, and I greeted him, and we talked for a while. And then he asked his family to leave the room. He says, Grantly, and I need to talk. And, I, and they said, okay. He left. They left, and he looked at me, and he says, when are you going to do what God's been asking you to do? I said, you're the one in ICU, not me. <laughs> you know, you, I should be asking you what you were going to do. And he said, I'm doing what God wants me to do. I know where I'm going. You need to answer the question. To this very day, the doctors cannot tell you why Alfred was in the hospital, why he was in ICU, and why he spent three months with a mysterious illness. And I believe it was to tell me, the third person to tell me, you need to change what you're doing. So I, became a, I, I went back to NNU and I got a master's degree. I'll move on from there. We've got, we've got a number of kids. We've got a, our oldest son is, is um, a pilot in the United States Air Force. Uh, so for you who are in the military, have kids in the military. I met one couple who has cousins in the military. So we, you know, we're proud of our children who went to the United States Air Force. Think about this. A poor kid from the Caribbean with $165 comes to the United States with a dream, lives here, and his son gets to go to the 10th most prestigious school in the world. And he gets to fly and do things that I will never, ever get to do in my entire life. All right? Um, and he has a wife, and they just produced us a grandson who I think is the greatest thing on the face of the earth. All right? Well, we won't get into that today. I was going to bring you pictures, but I decided not to do that. <laughs> but if you want to see, I've got about 100 on my cell phone that you can see. I can show you from the day he was born up to like two days ago if you want to see it. But I have a daughter who also went to NNU. She graduated from NNU, went to uh, um, Syracuse, and now she produces, she's a producer on shows for TV. Uh, comedy shows and night shows and those kind of things. That's what she loves to do. I call her my Ruth Bader Ginsburg because that's, that's who she is. And then we have two other children that we adopted in Salt Lake City because they just needed some parents at a time in a very tumultuous time of their life as teenagers. And we took them on, like Dr. Laird took me on when I needed somebody in my life. So we call them our children. One of them, her name is, she lives in Salt Lake City, has two sons, also two great grandsons that I love as well. And she lives there. And then our other daughter just moved back to Salt Lake from um, Virginia where her husband was working at the Pentagon for a while. And he just retired from there. Uh, Army Special Forces, young man. So pray for our men in the, in the military. Pray for our young men and young women in the military who are standing in the gap for us. The reason why we sit here today is because they're standing out there. Somebody has to be the sentry on the wall. And they're doing that for us, both men and women um, around the world. How we came to Washington was we met Pastor I. I, Pastor Ev and I went to NNU together and Rhonda. We were there at the same time. And we went our separate ways. He went to missionaries and did all this type of stuff. And then a few years ago when Jerry became the DS here, he invited me to, me to come, me and my wife to come to the district assembly and do a workshop on starting churches in the inner city, and, uh, which is what we believe is our mission, part of our mission. And... Uh, and in that class, Evan Rhonda walked in. They had just come back to the United States to take over Kent Church. And we renewed our acquaintance. And he'd been telling me for years, come to, you know, he kept telling me, come to Kent and pastor with me. You know, we can do this together and do that together. I said, no, I don't want to move to Washington, happy in Salt Lake City. And uh, then he invited us to come and speak again, invited my wife to come and speak at a women's ministry and invited us back and forth. And we kept telling him, no. And then one day in Salt Lake City, we pastor in this church, and both my wife and I look at I and says, we think our time in Salt Lake City is over. We don't know where we're supposed to go. So we started going through that process, and um, we didn't know what to do. Um, so we found this book, 
called the Circle Maker, and we decided to do that for 40 days by ourselves, ask God what he wanted us to do. Circle Maker is about praying in a circle and not getting out of that circle until God answers you, no matter how long it takes, no matter what it takes, no matter what happens to you in the circle, you stay in the circle until you get the answer that God wants you to have. And that's what we did. The end of 40 days, we said, nah, this can't be right. Let's do it 40 more days. <laughs> so we did it 40 more days. And, <laughs> and the 40th day, I was flying to Seattle to, be, to do some consulting. I did some consulting work here for a number of years after I got out of what I was, I started my own business doing consulting. Um, and my wife was flying in back to Salt Lake from speaking in Western Washington, and we had a two-hour layover in Seattle Airport, SeaTac. We said, let's have dinner there. So she was coming this way, and I was coming this way. We sat in SeaTac, um, you know, this is another aside, but I can't believe you guys let them take Ivars out to SeaTac Airport, <laughs> but we won't get down that road. <laughs> you can see where my bias is, but we were sitting there having dinner, and I said to her, what do you think God's asking us to do? She says, I think God's asking us to move to Seattle. So we went back home, and we prayed about it. We said, if God's asking us to do this, then we need to act. So we decided to put our house on the market to see if it would happen. And uh, a friend of us invited us to go to Africa. We said, yeah, put the house on market. We'd be in Africa. People can walk through it and stuff. You know, we won't be there. You know, you don't have to put your stuff away and go out and have a false dinner and go and hang out in the park. I live right next to a golf course, but go and play golf or whatever. So we decided to go to Africa. And while we were in Africa, in six days, our house sold for more money than we were asking for it. We came back home and we had 21 days to pack up and move. <laughs> so that's how we came to Washington. We came to Washington with no job. Well, I had a consulting business, but it wasn't really making enough money. Um, no place to live, nothing to do, except we knew that God had told us to come here and help build multicultural ministries, starting with Kent Church of the Nazarene, Kent Hillside Church. And that's how we got here. And ever since we got here, God has taken care of us every day, every hour, exceedingly, abundantly, above more we can ask or imagine. And every time we think that he's not taking care of us, he comes through again, above and beyond, exceedingly abundantly, everything beyond more than we can ask or imagine. So that's how God works. So now you know my life in a very short, <laughs> in a very short space of time. If you ever want to hear all the other details, then you can you can have me come back again, and I'll tie it all together and how the missionaries worked and all that kind of stuff. So, Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 10. Um, I'm going to be preaching from Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, so you have to keep your Bible open the entire time, otherwise you're going to, you, you, you will get lost uh, because I didn't submit any notes. So if you follow me through the Bible, you should be able to do it. Uh, and these are very long chapters. If I read all the verses we're going to talk about, there would be 60 verses to read. So we're not going to read all 60 verses. We're going to read the synopsis in chapter 11, and then we're going to go back and have the message from chapter 10 and quite get you caught up with chapter 11. Does that make sense? Right? But if you want me to read all 60 verses, I'm more than happy to read them to you as well. Right? I, one of my pet peeves is coming to church, and people say, well, you know, you try to read a passage, but you shouldn't read a long passage. Well, why are you in church? It's God's word, right? That should be the first thing we're reading, but we won't get into that this morning. Let's stand. Lord, we thank you for this day. It's a beautiful day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you speak to us. Thank you for bringing us here. You know why you brought us here. You know exactly why every person in this room, you know exactly why every child is downstairs. You know exactly why the pastor is where he is. You know exactly why everything that has been ordained for this particular day, at this particular time, at this particular moment, in this particular place. And for such a time as this, you have brought us here. And I pray that we would hear your word, not only hear your word, but that we would be doers of your word, and that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can find what is that perfect and acceptable will of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 11, I'm reading from the New King James Version. 
the Wesley edition, the Nazarene Fisher version. Okay. <laughs> Some of you who've been around for a while, you'll get that, right? <laughs> uh, let's see. Now, the apostles and brethren who were in Judea and heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth and beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, No, so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now it was done three times, and all were drawn up again to heaven. At the very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, those, these six brethren accompanied me and entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in the house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He will tell you by which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and upon us at the beginning. And then I remember the words of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted the Gentiles repentance to life. Amen. You may be seated. The encounter between Peter and Cornelius begins in Acts chapter 10 and is summarized in Acts chapter 11, as I just read to you. In chapter 10, portions of the experience between Peter and Cornelius is repeated at least three times as the story is retold by the various participants. So though... We've gone through chapter 11 for the sake of time this morning. Our message will take us through chapter 10 and to chapter 11, looking at specific portions of the scripture. Why is the experience of the two main characters repeated over and over? If you read these chapters, if you read the two chapters, you will see that the story is repeated three different times, and every person repeats it the same way. Whether it be Peter, whether it be Cornelius, or whether it be the people, the, the men who were sent um, to, to find Peter. And we say, why was, the first thing we should ask is, why was this so? I believe there are a number of reasons, but one of them is, first of all, that Peter and Cornelius wanted to make sure that it was not a dream, right? Because it says it started in a trance, and I was praying and I saw an angel, right? They wanted to make sure it was not a dream. So Cornelius immediately told it to his servants and told it to his trusted advisor. And then Peter was praying, and he was asking God, and, and it was revealed to him. And, and just as he was questioning it, these men appeared. So they went back and forth and back and forth until they realized that it was not a dream. It was an encounter with the Holy Spirit. It was truly an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And once they required that, once they understood that, I believe it's repeated over and over so that every person who hears this encounter will know that it was not Peter and Cornelius conjuring up the story, but that it was the work of the Holy Spirit, and that because they were obedient to the work of the Holy Spirit, God was able to do transformational, life-changing things in his church that was never been done before because of the obedience of two men who had no reason to meet for whatever reason except by the power of the Holy Spirit. No reason to meet. And I'll be able to get into that in a minute as to why they had no reason to meet. The most popular sentence in this experience is the account that has been repeated in many sermons and many teachings over the years. Chapter 10, verse 34 says, 
We love to repeat that. God shows no partiality. In fact, James repeats it in the book of James. However, I believe that most of the way this passage has been taught has brushed over what is the true underlying message that God is trying to get through to us, that the Holy Spirit is trying to get through to us. And I believe this message, the, the, this underlying message is that many times our traditions, our institutional biases, our cultural influences overshadow our view of the work and the promises of God. And we tend to want to interpret them through our lens rather than let the Holy Spirit interpret them through his lens. We have to get rid of the Sunday school interpretations of the simplicity of the gospel. And if we're going to grow in our faith and the church of Jesus Christ is going to do what it needs to do today, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to interpret what he wants to interpret and not try to, 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 to simmer them down into a good Bible story that we can tell the kids and tell the different people. That's good for the children downstairs. But at some point, we've got to grow out of our childhood and we've got to start accepting the Word of God as the Word of God that transforms our life into what He wants us to be and not interpret it within our context to what we want it to say. Amen. Living in a modern world that struggles with reason over biblical authority the church in some places is being absorbed into the general community standards. And we can't tell the difference between the church and the community. And, and, and God doesn't call us to be absorbed into anything but to be absorbed into his spirit. Any other absorption is not within his plan. We're supposed to be salt and light into the world, helping transform the world, not helping to become like the world. But too many times the church has not championed the full message of reconciliation to the world that God has given to us. The scripture says he has called us to the message of reconciliation. And we, and we allow ourselves and our message to become divisive and cultural rather than become transformational. And this is just not a North American issue. This is all over the world. I go to the Caribbean, I see the same thing. Go to Africa, I see the same thing. Been to India, been to China, been to all these places, and I see the same thing where if we are not careful, if we are not willing to, to do as Peter did and Cornelius did and say, I don't understand. The Scripture says while he was pondering this, God told him to do this. So that even though we don't understand, we are willing to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and to transform us into what he wants us to be. God didn't call us to a cultural message. He didn't call us to a traditional message. He didn't call us to a divisive message. He called us to a message of transformation, a message of hope, a message of mercy, a message of grace, a message of peace, and a message that is universally acceptable to every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. It is the only universal message that has ever been brought. And it will, only, and it will be the only universal message that will ever be taught. Because it's the message of the God who created heaven and earth. And he's the only one who knows what a message is supposed to be. He's the creator. The created cannot tell the creator how to deliver the message. The created needs to conform to the creator and allow the creator to transform us. So whenever God calls us to be a Peter, he's, calling, he, he want, he's doing that because he has a Cornelius somewhere that we need to meet. All right, I'm going to have to move through this very fast. Whenever, he, whenever, there's, whenever we're in Joppa, there's, there's going to be somebody in Caesarea that God wants us to reach. Right? Joppa was 30 miles from Caesarea. Think about that. 30 miles from Caesarea. Peter was an apostle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cornelius was a soldier in the Roman army. If you study biblical history, those are like oil and water. They don't mix. Not only did they not mix politically and theologically, they don't mix, they don't mix on the, on, by area of how, just who they are. The Romans, the Jews were in subjection to the Romans. And even though you watch TV sometimes and you don't really get it, if you study history, the Romans were not a very compassionate people. The Romans didn't have meetings to ask the Jews, what do you, how do you think we should treat you? Or the subjects. It was a hostile situation. That's why they didn't like when Jesus called Matthew as a disciple. Because Matthew was a tax collector, and even though he was a Jew, he was seen to be a representative of Rome. Rome was brutal. They, they, didn't, they didn't care about human rights. They didn't care about what you did. As long as, long as you did follow their rules, you were fine. But if you stepped out of line any one time, 
the Romans came down really hard. You can read that in the book of Ephesians, right? When they were having the dispute in the temple, what did the temple messenger say? Why are we having this noise and arguing and keeping all of this noise? If the soldiers hear that we are doing this, what will they do for us? What will they do to us when they arrive? They weren't coming to pat them on the back and say, okay, now calm down. Let's talk about this like brothers and sisters. That's not what it meant. They were coming with a heavy hand to put an end to that insurrection. So the first thing we see here is that our traditional foundations of faith needs to be challenged. You say, why is that? Well, let's look at whose foundation of faith was challenged, and then we can see why it is. Who was Peter? Now, if you had to find any disciple who was the most perfect disciple, who was the closest to Jesus, who would you find? It was Peter. Many people like to talk about Paul. Paul wasn't a disciple. Paul came afterwards. Just because we got a whole bunch of books by Paul, Paul was never a disciple. He was an intellectual that was really able to write really well. That helps us today. But Peter was the man. Peter was one of the first four disciples that Jesus found. Peter came to Jesus with his brother Andrew. He was one of the inner circle. Every time we read about the disciples, the disciples are divided into four groups of three. And Peter was always the leader in the first group, and he was always the leader of the first group. That's why we always read Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, and Peter did this, and Peter did that, and Peter did that. He was always first. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. He was the one who saw the miracles that Jesus did up, upright and firsthand. He was the second and only man to ever walk on water. All the other disciples were in the boat, scared, and Peter got out. And many times we criticize Peter for sinking in the water, but how many people in here have ever walked on water? Even if he took two steps, he did more than everybody else in the rest of the world, right? He, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He helped prepare the Last Supper. He was in the garden when Jesus sweat drops of blood. In fact, he was so close to Jesus that he cut off the soldier's ear when they came to arrest him. He denied Jesus three times, but yet he became one of the greatest apostles that we've ever known about. He saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. Peter has also preached the second greatest evangelistic sermon ever to be preached on, on, this, on this earth. The first one was preached by who? Jesus, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5 to 7, the greatest evangelistic message ever preached. You see, so here's Peter. He performed miracles himself. In fact, Peter was so holy that when he walked down the road, people would bring the sick and the lame close to him. If you read the first of us, it says, and his shadow alone was enough to cause people to be healed. And we said, well, why would his faith need to be rocked? Why would his theology need to be challenged? If he's got all of these, here's the reason why. Because even though he had all of these things, even though he was doing all of these things, even though he was seen as the number one disciple in every instance in the Bible, he was still biased in his theological and his cultural outlook on life. That is one part of his life he had never allowed the Holy Spirit to take hold of until Acts chapter 10 where, where the Holy Spirit said, enough's enough, Peter. If you're going to do this work, that part's got to go too. Rocked his world. He thought it was normal. He thought it was okay to discriminate against people. He thought it was okay to not like the, the, the Gentiles. He, he, when, he, when he said those words, I have never eaten anything unclean, Peter didn't have to think about that. That just flowed out of his mouth. Why? Because that's how he was taught. That's how he was brought up. That's the values that he had inculcated into him. It was his normal. And who was he telling this to? I mean, think about it. Right? When you read the Bible, don't just read it in the 21st century thing and just go over it like you're reading a Gatha Christie novel. You know, every word in the Bible means something, and it's there for a purpose. Right? Who was he telling this to that nothing clean has ever come out of my mouth? God, who made it all. The creator that he proclaimed to be representing, he's telling God, you don't know what I should eat. Think about that. That's how deep his tradition had been sown into his vision of the world. That he's saying, you God alone, you don't even know. If you knew, you would have never asked me to eat that. Think about how absurd that was. And think about it as well. Why did this happen? The scripture said in, in those early verses that Peter went up to the roof to pray and he got hungry. So God puts a blanket in front of him and says, take up, kill, and eat. Give him the very same thing that he asked for. And he says, I don't want the same thing you asked me, I asked for because it's not wrapped up in the right package. 
Sometimes God speaks to us, and we've been praying, and we've been praying, and we've been praying, and we've been pounding the altar, man, and we've been fasting, and we've been going through it, and we've been going through the Bible, and we can quote the Scripture, and God puts his, his answer right here on the altar, and lo and behold, we look at him and say, that can't be the answer. I won't even pray in 80 days if you tell me what to do. That can't be the right answer. We predispose how we want God to answer us before we even ask him. How many times when we get to heaven are we going to see when we look back on our lives, just like Facebook goes back and shows you five years ago, you know, how many things are we going to see on that line that God answered our prayers and we walked away from it because it wasn't wrapped up in the way that our cultural and social and traditional values said it should appear? We're all going to be amazed. So Peter was prejudiced. He didn't love his neighbor as himself. Jesus said the two greatest commandments is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the greatest evangelist after Jesus, and he didn't love his neighbor as himself. And what the Scripture tells us is that eventually, if you really want to do what God wants you to do, if you're really going to get down on your, your knees and say, God, anytime, anyplace, anywhere, anyhow you want me to do, prepare for a job of experience. Because if there's anything in there that's barring his message, he is going to root it out. And it's not going to be pretty. Right? It wasn't pretty. But the result is going to be tremendous. Life-changing, world-changing. This, you and I are sitting in this sanctuary today because Peter went through the Joppa experience. And he decided to follow God. And to put his prejudices aside, put his biases aside, put his upbringing aside, put his values aside, and allow the Holy Spirit to lean him. So let's look at the next thing that we see. So Peter now has got the message. The message, what is God trying to tell him? Your definition of me is too small. Your box can't hold me, right? Many of us have boxes, right? God boxes. We don't, we don't talk about it, but we have God boxes. God said, your box is too small, Peter. I know you may be a good preacher. I know people get healed when you walk by. I know you, I know you saw 3,000 or 5,000 people come to me in one and two sermons. But, hey, you still don't catch the vision. Your vision is still too small. If you're really going to be part of this thing, you've got to get rid of that box because I cannot live in a box. You can't follow me in a box. I don't care what your mother taught you, don't care what your grandmother taught you, don't care what your father taught you, don't care what your priest taught you, don't care what your high Sunday school teacher taught you, I don't care if you sit on the worship team, don't care if you sit on the church board. If you want to follow me, I will not be contained in your box of whatever you think is how I should be. You look at verse 23, chapter 10, verse 23. It says, the men arise from Caesarea, and what did Peter do, right? He says, come in. You notice that he's skipping over all the fluffy stuff that we like to talk about, right? <laughs> We're getting down to the meat of what the message really is. There's five verses where the message is in, and it's not the ones that we read every time. He invited them in to spend the night. Now think about this. These are Gentile men coming to him saying, come to a Gentile place. And remember, his box was too small five minutes ago. Now he walks down the stairs and he says, come and spend the night with us. We'll feed you. We'll clothe you. We will, we will make sure you're taken care of. Right away, Peter decided to deal with his prejudices. He decided... If this is truly true, I don't understand everything that God is doing, but I have got to deal with my prejudices. So I invited the men into my house, and there I can, I can talk with them and find out what's going on. Now, here's the thing. Two things, a couple of things I want you to understand. It's easier for a Jew to invite a Gentile into their house than for a Jew to go into a Gentile house. So this is the first part, right? This is the easy part. This is the soft step. When he gets to Caesarea, it's going to be the hard step. Because when the Jew invited the Gentile into his house, he controlled the situation. He knew that the food was not offered to idols. He knew that it was kosher. He knew a time to pray. He knew everything. So even though the Gentile was in his house, he was still in control of his house. But the neighbors were looking through their windows and saying, why is Peter having those people go in his house? 
people were calling the church board and the pastor and sending emails and saying, Peter's got some of those people in his house. He may bring them to church next Sunday, and what are we going to do if they come into our nice, pretty church? Hospitality should be the hallmark of the follower of Jesus Christ. We should always be hospitable to everyone that we, we meet, and whether we need to invite them into our house or not. You see, I believe that our house is the biggest evangelistic tool that we have, and we don't use it very effectively. Food is the universal uniter, food and music. Two things that unites people, food and music. And if you invite people into your house, you will have conversations that you will never have in the sanctuary, you will never have in that lobby, you will never have in the Bible study, and you will never have in a restaurant. Because when you invite people into your house, walls begin to break down. And people have conversations. We have young people come to our house. We love to entertain people. And you will not believe the conversations that we hear as those people relax and tell us things that they would never tell before or that we would share with them the things that these young people are going through in high school and in college and stuff that many of you who are parents and grandparents, you don't have a clue. You don't have a clue what these kids are going through. If you don't have them around that table, if you don't have them put away their phones, we have a rule in our house, you can come, you can have fun or whatever, but when we sit down at a table to eat, no phones. Let's eat, let's talk, and you would not believe how much conversation happens there, how many lives are transformed at that table. You wouldn't believe the things that these, these people tell us is going on. It's like, whoa, I had no idea. I had no idea, I won't get into it with you, but trust me, it will blow your mind. So hospitality. So Peter got up the next morning now when he's going on his 30-mile journey. Look at chapter 10, verse 28. What does he say? Peter gets to Cornelius' house. Remember, the scripture says he was still pondering, right? The angel didn't tell him why you're going to Caesarea. What did he say? Go to Caesarea and do not doubt. Didn't tell him what he was going to do. So he goes. How many of us be willing to do that? Just go. You'll find out when you get there. It's a need to know. The Pentagon didn't come up with that phrase. God came up with that phrase. I'll tell you when you need to know. Just get there. So he gets there. And what does he begin with? The first statement, verse 28. You people understand that it is against the law for Jewish people to associate with anyone who is not Jewish. That is a profound statement. It is a profound statement because what he was saying is that what I am about to do will break every rule, will break every law, will break every tradition, will break everything that I have been asked to do in my entire life. Remember, two days ago, Peter was arguing with the Holy Spirit about this very thing. <laughs> and now he's about to do it. In fact, he's not only about to do it, he was staying inside the house. Think about the emails and the phone calls and everything going back and forth. Peter just went in to this house with these people. It was a lot much easier for him. This was not easier for him to do. It was much easier for him to have those three men in his house than now to enter the house of a centurion, a Roman official, and a Gentile, and to do it without knowing what was... What was, what was on the table, and to be defiled, because once he crossed that threshold, he was defiled, and he broke every rule. And J.P. Poorhill says, one simply cannot dine in a Gentile's home without inevitably transgressing those laws by either consumption of unclean flesh or the flesh that had not been prepared in a kosher where was ritually improper. Jesus dealt with this problem of clean and unclean, insisting that external things like food do not defile a person, but the internals of the heart and speech that render us truly unclean. All right. Jesus said that in Mark, and now Peter's living it in Acts, demonstrating it to the whole church that what Jesus said is actually true. He's not unclean. He's unclean in the Jewish tradition. But God didn't call him to be a Jew. God called him to be a representative of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So now he's got to cross over there and demonstrate that I'm not, I may be unclean by my religious tradition, but I am clean because I'm following the Holy Spirit. And what he has made clean, who am I to say is unclean? So Peter enters the house of Cornelius as a stranger, and he leaves as a brother. 
in Christ. See, that's what happens in Caesarea when we go to Caesarea. When we are willing to walk from Joppa, where we are comfortable and everything is the way we like it, and we, we, you know, we have our rules, our traditions, or everything, come to church, do all this stuff, you know, and then we're willing to go to Caesarea where it's not comfortable, where the people are different, they don't look like us, they may not talk like us, they may not smell like us, they may not eat the food we do, may not listen to the same music we do. Lo and behold, they may cuss and they may swear. Lo and behold, they may be divorced. Some of them may be homosexual, some may be whatever, and we got to come over here and deal with these people. Lord, why can't you leave me in Joppa? where I know everybody and everything is comfortable and all of my friends are Christian. You're calling me over here with these kind of people. What, do you, what, what, do you, what was this all about? Because we don't get filled with the Holy Spirit to hang out with people who are like us. We get filled with the Holy Spirit to be salt and light. And the essence of the perfume of the Holy Spirit in a carnal, disruptive, destructive world, which is where the Holy Spirit really shines through. So people ask me a lot of times, why are you, a, why are you a, um, a, a bivocational minister and all that stuff? I said, because I like to hang out with unrighteous people. I like to be where they're cussing and swearing and drinking and doing all these things. And they don't smell like us sometimes and they don't look good. And they don't always know what to do. And they want to come to church and make change of the offering plate, you know, and all these kind of things, you know. And we say, Lord, can you do that? That's where I want to be. Because that's where transformation is taking place. I love being with you on a Sunday morning. This is a great time. But, but, but let me tell you, we, when we have the altar time, if you need to be transformed, come and be transformed. But tomorrow, I want to be sitting in the seat where the ungodly people need to get the essence of what's happening here today. Amen. Because here's what it is. When we become filled with the Holy Spirit, we don't have to worry about becoming like them. He fills us to be like him with his spirit. And many times we're afraid to go into these uncomfortable places because people say, well, and we even teach our children this stuff. We used to teach this in the old days in the church, right? All, all Bible studies and stuff. Don't hang out with those people because you may become like them. That is such bad theology. I mean, I, I, it's, just, it's terrible theology. Jesus said to go into the world and make disciples, transforming them in the name of the Father, Son, and God. He didn't say go into the world and become like the world. So if this Holy Spirit is who he said he is, if our God is so big, so strong, and almighty, there's nothing that my God cannot do, then I don't have to be afraid of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday because I am not there to become like them. I am there for them to become like me. Amen. Under the power of the Holy Spirit. So it costs and swear all you want, do whatever you want to do, talk about whatever you want to talk about. I'm just going to sit, sit, sit down here because when I leave that room, you're going to know that the Holy Spirit was there. That's just how I see it. That's just how I feel it is. I remember having gone into a room one day for work, and there was a lot of conflict and everything. And somebody says, well, Grantley, why are you here? I says, I'm here because you guys need me here. They said, why? They says, because I bring the Holy Spirit in this room, and none of you guys have him. And if he's not here, we're not going to solve this problem. And they all look at me. What's he talking about? <laughs> you know, I don't represent them. When I go to work every day, I represent the Lord Jesus Christ. My measure of success is not what they think of me. My measure of success is what he thinks of me at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night when I get in my bed. Can he say, well done, you're a good and faithful servant? Or you became like them. See, we don't have to be careful. You don't have to be afraid of that. I know we're coming up on your 11.58 time here in a minute, but, um, <laughs> you know. Peter broke these traditions because of the sake of the gospel. So now he goes back to, so, that, so to two more things. He says to them now, not just have food with them, not just participate with them. He shares the gospel with them. And what does the scripture say? Not only Cornelius, but everybody in the house gets filled with the Holy Spirit. Now think about this. Cornelius was a, a Hebrew, a, 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 a Roman he was everything that the church in Jerusalem said they should not associate with. But what was the scripture say about Cornelius? Sometimes our view of the world is completely different to God's view of the world. The people that we don't think matter, that, that we don't think are good enough for this gospel. By the way, at some point, you weren't good enough for it either. Yeah, just, just a reminder. 
<laughs> it says in chapter 10, verse 22, Cornelius was a just man, one who fears God, one who has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by the holy angel. This is a man that the church in Jerusalem, when you go to chapter 11, says, you shouldn't have gone in his house. And the Holy Spirit says, he's just, he's honest, he's recognized by me. In fact, it says, the angel says, God has heard your prayer and he has recognized your sacrifice. And the church is saying, uh-uh. It's the same thing about nothing impure has gone into my mouth. Sometimes we in church are defining people by our own standards that had nothing to do with what God wants to define them by. And he's looking at them and saying, come on in. And we're looking at them and saying, not today. Come on in. Not today. We don't want to mess up our carpet. We don't know what's going to happen to our children if they hang out around people like that. Just lay hands on your kids and annoy them with all. You don't have to worry about that after that. He can take care of it, right? I don't know about this, right? The same thing happened to Paul, right? The same thing happened to Paul earlier. He became a believer, and the Christians said, no, uh-uh. <laughs> You've been trying to kill us last week. We don't care how good God is, how great God is, how much, you had a, how much you had a personal experience, how much the Holy Spirit came to you, and how much the, 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 the apostle came and laid hands on you. You're not coming into this assembly. Two years before they accepted him into the assembly. In those two years, God used him to win more people than most of those people in that whole assembly ever talked to in their entire life. Sometimes our definition of people needs to be conformed to how God sees them rather than how we see them by our transition. So now let's, let's get to the last thing, and then I'll wrap this up. But it says, it gets to chapter 11, and the first thing the church says, this is Grantley interpretation, we don't care what vision you had in Joppa. We don't care what happened to, to, to uh, Cornelius. We don't care to the fact that you went there and you preached the gospel and there received the Holy Spirit. You went into that man's house and you ate with Gentiles and you are about to be excommunicated. That's what that conversation was about if you read it. He had violated so many laws in the Hebrew tradition <laughs> right? It was just a matter of the high priest pronouncing the excommunication. The first thing they said, I mean, I'm not making this up. That's just my interpretation. This is in verse 3. It wasn't until all the way to verse, um, let's see, it was not all the way to verse 18 that they accepted what God had done. They said, you went in there, you went with those people, you broke the laws, you did all of this stuff. Remember, it was six people plus Peter who went into this house who brought back this report about God, the Holy Spirit receiving the, 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 Holy, the, the people receiving the Holy Spirit. And the church says, don't matter. Holy Spirit next. Right now, tradition. We're supposed to be serving this God, but his Holy Spirit, uh-uh. Why would you go in this guy's house? We don't care how many people received the Holy Spirit. We don't care how many people got saved. You should not have gone into a Gentile's house. How many times do we do that as Christians with people who come back and bring a good report about what God's doing? And our first question is, where did you went? Who did you hang out with? Why did you go and talk to that person? You know, you're not going to invite them to church, are you? Maybe you can take them to that other church you go to, but this one here, that we're not ready for them type of people, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? You see, sometimes we can have it all together. We can be worshiping God. We can be doing all these things. We can have good Bible study. We can have good worship ministries, good this, good that, good this, good that. And we can completely miss the message because our traditions, our values, our biases and everything is more important than what the Word of God says. But Peter wraps it up really good in chapter 11, verse 17. He says... If God, whom we serve, has given them the same gift, then who am I to say they can't be a part of the fellowship? Really good. <laughs> it's his church. 
if he invites them into his church, then who am I to usher to say they can't come in? If he is Lord of all, then the gospel message has to apply to everybody. And it has to transcend our culture. It has to transcend our prejudices. It has to transcend our biases. has to transcend our Bible studies. has to transcend all of this kind of stuff. And we got to be open to receive whoever God is brings into his word. And you and I have got to be ready to receive and to be willing to do what he asks us to do, even if it may be uncomfortable, even if it may not fit with our values and our traditions and our bringing up. You see, whenever there is a Peter, if you want to be a Peter, you will have your Cornelius. Now, you don't have to be a Peter. You can be anyone at 11. That's all right. But if you want to be a Peter, you got to be willing to deal with your Cornelius. And if you're in Joppa and you want to get to Caesarea, where the Holy Spirit is at work. You see, what Caesarea represents is where God was at work. And if we want to be where God is at work, then we got to leave Joppa, and we got to come over to Caesarea, and we got to get uncomfortable. Henry Blackaby calls it a crisis of faith. We have to be willing to go through a crisis of faith so that we can actually see what God is doing and come in line with him. So I ask you today, who is your Cornelius and where is your Caesarea? Many times we pray the prayer of Jabez and we say, oh, Lord, would you bless me and expand my territory? And I believe God's trying to expand our territory and we're like, not there. <laughs> not there. You asked me to expand your territory, but I'm not going over there. Not Caesarea. I want to be a missionary. I want to go to Africa. But I don't want to go to Seattle. Too many liberals in Seattle. You know? I want to be a missionary. You know, I want to go to Swaziland and work in the hospital. But I don't want to go to New York City and work in Bellevue, the largest mental institution, mental hospital in the entire country. I don't want to hang out with those people down there in that big city. You know, what can happen to me down there? You know? I want to be a missionary, but I don't want to talk to homeless people. Oh, no, I, what, what, I want to talk to them. This don't smell good. And they got all this stuff they're hauling around, and they're going to come and park that old broken-down van in my church parking lot. And what are people going to think when they see that old broken-down van in our church parking lot? And I don't want to go to the bar and talk to the alcoholics and stuff because they're going to bring cigarette butts and beer bottles in our, in our lobby let me tell you something. My church needs to have beer, beer, beer bottles, beer cans, cigarette butts, and homeless broken down cars in, in the lobby because if that's the people that God wants to reach, then I don't mind picking up cigarette butts and beer cans and helping people fix their old truck. Amen. So my, my question to you is, are you willing to follow Peter? There's four things, three things that came out of this. Are you willing to pray and ask God for his guidance and allow him to do in you what he wants to do? Not what you want him to do, but what he wants to do. Then are you willing to obey it, to follow his lead, even if you don't understand, even if it makes you uncomfortable, even if it assaults your preferences and your upbringing and your traditions and your values and all of this stuff? And then are you willing to connect? Are you willing to connect in the places where God is already at work. Here's the thing. God's not going to create a new plan just to suit you. His plan's already been created, and he's saying, come and join me. i said that again. The first time I heard that, it really made me uncomfortable. God's not going to create a new plan just to make you comfortable. If you want to follow God, he's already at work around us. He's already at work in Caesarea and Philippi and Macedonia and Italy and all these other places that the apostle didn't want to go. And he's going to say, if you want to really be a part of this great commission, then I'm not giving you your special plan in your favorite part of town. Are you willing to get on my boat and go where I'm going, go over to the other side of the lake where I'm at work? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive and it's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing asunder and rightly dividing the word of truth.
You brought me here this morning. You gave me this message. I don't know why you gave it to me. When I talked to Pastor, the first thing he asked me, what are you going to speak about? First thing that came to my head was Acts chapter 10. Don't know why. You know why. You know why we needed this message today. You know why I needed this message today because I'm uniquely aware that every message you give me applies to me first before it applies to anybody else. You know why you wanted this word to be delivered here today, and I pray that it would find the roots, it would find the seeds, and it would find the growth that you interpreted and that you needed for it to do today. In Jesus' name, amen.